0: Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. uh, Let's see, this morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, if you want to go there with me, Revelation chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 13, and uh, as we go through this, we're going to... We have uh, this church in Philadelphia and then next week we'll look at the church of Laodicea and then we'll take a little break from the book of Revelation uh, the week after Father's Day one of our missionaries from Africa, Andrew Anguka will be here um, and so he's stateside and, and doing some touring of different churches. He's going to spend a little time with us and you guys will get to hear from him and what's going on with his ministry um, and uh, different things that are coming up for uh, One Life Africa over there in Africa. So that that's coming and then uh, we'll have a three week period where We'll look at the book of Second Peter. Um, I'll do the first chapter of that book, and then Don Bauman is going to come back and teach for two weeks, and I'm going to disappear for a little while, and I'll see you around when I get back. But uh, it'll be good to have a break. And what uh, we'll uh, Second Peter definitely complements what we're doing in Revelation. And then uh, when we when we get back, get done with uh, Second Peter, we'll come back to the book of Revelation and work our way through it all the way till Christmas time. So we've got plenty of uh, the book of Revelation coming. As we look at this portion that we're in, uh, the book is laid out, and he says that uh, uh, he wants John to write down the things that were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And so we're in the portion for John, which these are the current events that are going on in seven local churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so as we go through this, Jesus could have chose any, any number of different churches. He chose seven, and he chose these seven in particular. And if you look at what's going on, you can see that there are sort of types of different churches and struggles that churches encounter throughout the history of uh, Christianity. Uh, You can also see that uh, these struggles aren't unique. You don't just have one of them, but uh, each church may struggle with three, four, five, all seven of them. Um, And so there's different things that we can take from it within our own lives. But you have the local context that's going on for immediate application. These are real historical places, uh, real churches, and the information that's provided to them is very pertinent to them at the time. But then it also teaches us about the church throughout history. And then it also gives us application for our own church and then our own lives. Okay. And so that's, that's what we're looking at as we go through this. This church in Philadelphia, uh, the the message here is is motivated by a greater reward. Uh, What you're going to see as we go through this is uh, this is one of the churches that doesn't have any rebuke. There's only positive things that Jesus says to them. Some of you are going, finally, Um, right? Uh, As we've gone through this, there's been some hard truths. There there are some in this passage um, that that we'll look at, but this is really more about um, giving us the right way to live, giving us a a motivation that is greater than anything that we could uh, have. And of ourselves. Okay, so motivated by this greater reward is what we're looking at um as we go through this, I think it's really important to recognize that as we as we shared in communion the, the body representing or the, the bread representing Jesus's body broken on the cross for us uh, that he died in our place it, that that penalty that he took and and the punishment uh, the chastening that was on him it really was due to us and he took it for us uh, and then the other part of it is that without Jesus's spilled blood there is no forgiveness of sins uh, there is no other name under which heaven that has been given to us to be saved uh, we need Jesus' blood spilled for us. The consequences of sin are serious. And Jesus, uh, he gave his blood instead of ours. And it, 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 his blood is is efficacious. It's fully efficient to save us from the consequences of our sin. There's nothing else like it. Um, there's no one else like him. And as we go through this, one of the things that we're going to see is that Jesus as the Messiah is something that was being attacked for this church in Philadelphia. But they maintain Uh, they're motivated by a greater reward and so they don't get off track It's actually pretty rare if you were to wander around to different churches to hear about Jesus's spilled blood anymore. It's something that's avoided. Um, the the consequences of sin are made light, uh, but in God's eyes they're not, and in our eyes they shouldn't be either. And so uh, the seriousness of sin is something that we need to we need to weigh as as an, an honest thing, uh, a truth that we need to come to grips with, and that without Jesus's blood, uh, we are helpless and hopeless to defeat sin. And so uh, there's a there's a measure of great thanks that comes along with that isn't there when you see what he's done for us when you see his willingness to sacrifice himself and pay our debt uh, it really opens up your eyes to uh, want to live for him at least it should when you see his love and you see what he's done for you you understand his, his life traded for your own his blood spilled instead of yours the consequences of sin poured out on him God's wrath his righteous anger towards sin um, given to Jesus instead of you and I Uh, That should be quite the motivating factor. But what we're going to see in this is that there's even more than that. There's even more to be motivated in Christianity than just Jesus' death. He's resurrected from the dead, and and in that, he offers us new life. Uh, We're going to see in this passage that the greater reward that we live for, God has crowns that he, he will bestow upon us, rewards for how we've lived our life here on earth. And so one of the things that that makes you do is you say, well, is my life organized in a way? Have I patterned my life um, for this reward? You know, if you were to look back at this last week and you say, well, on Monday I went to work, and, you know, Monday through Friday I went to work. I got home. Um, you know, uh, while I was at work, was I living for a paycheck? Or while I was at work, was I living for a greater reward? I mean, paycheck's good. You should work. Please, don't, don't not work. Um, we got enough of that already. Um... But, you know, God has gifted you, and, and, he's, and he's blessed you with uh, talents and abilities, and you should use those in the areas of uh, expertise and, and ministry and different things that he's given you. You should, you should do that. But when you go to work, is it about the paycheck, or are you there for a greater reward? Is there something more happening while you're at work? Um, maybe parenting. I don't know about you, but many times in parenting, my goal is just to get to 8.30, because that's when they go to bed. Um <laughs> And, I, and I've been guilty of that. I, I know it. There are times where I'm just, just get me to 8.30. That's when they go to bed. Um, I don't think I'm living for a greater reward when I'm thinking of parenting that way. Um, th- there's, there's more to be had there. Um, there's, a, there's a greater way to live. And I think you could look at different area of your, areas of your life and, and see that. Are you living for this greater reward or are you just sort of going through the motions? And so let me pray, and then we'll look at these verses that Jesus has through the Apostle John to the church in Philadelphia. Father, this morning we come to your word ready to learn from you. Uh, We come ready for you to inspect our lives and show us areas where maybe we have some growth. And uh, that's exciting, honestly, to to be before God, to be before you, and have not fear, Um, but an excitement that you want to grow us into the image of your son. Uh, You do that through exposing us to truth in the word. You do that through your Holy Spirit guiding us. You do that through your promises. And so I pray that we would take hold of your promises. uh, And ultimately what we're doing in taking hold of your promises, we're taking hold of you. Uh, if, if we have, uh, if we are in you, if we are in your Son, and we are new creations, then then we are gripped by you. I pray that we would grip back and uh, long for the sweetness of life that comes through knowing you. I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so verses 7 and 8, I'll read those and then we'll kind of take them apart. Revelation chapter 3. It says, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the true One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. And so we learned that this church in Philadelphia, that it has little power. It's a statement of a church that's been ousted by man-made religion. And what Jesus promises them is that this church that, you know, what man-made religion does is it's a group of people or many groups of people who would say, um, we have to work our way to God. That's what man-made religion does. It says there's a gap between us and God. Let's work our way to him. And the story of the entire Bible is not man working our way to God, but it's God working his way back to us. The only work that we did was to run away from God and he he runs towards us and we see this in the old in the Old Testament we see that God comes to this group of people that he shows up to Abraham and then he founds a nation and he makes a covenant with them, and his presence is with them in the tabernacle and then in the temple and it's it's about God coming to people not people working their way to God and then Jesus shows up, and this is the ultimate expression of God pursuing us, right? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He shows up and he pursues us. And so uh, this church in Philadelphia, they're, they're maintaining this. They're holding on to that, that God has worked his way to us. It isn't about us working our way to him. This isn't about human effort. This is about God's grace. But the man-made religion of the time, and this is what people had superimposed on top of Judaism, was all these rules and self-effort. The Apostle Paul would have been a good good example of this. uh, Saul of Tarsus could have said that he was of the synagogue of Satan. That it was about man-made effort and man-made rules until Jesus opened his eyes. But this church in Philadelphia, they've, they've lost their influence in the city because they've been ousted by man-made religion. And Jesus tells them, he says, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. Uh, some interesting things here, uh, Jesus' words to them is that he is the Holy One, he is the true one. Uh, the emphasis there is on the fact that Jesus is the source of holiness and truth. Um, moral spirit, moral and spiritual goodness have no other origin. Uh, moral and spiritual goodness—you're not going to find it in anything else. You, and if you do, say you were to look at the, the our culture, or you were to look at uh, philosophy, and you see something that you say that's morally good, it may well be, but those people didn't come up with it. It found its origin in Jesus, Amen. and so he is—he is the origin of all moral and spiritual goodness. You, you won't find it anywhere else. There's no other source. He's also the, the one that, where truth resides. Uh, what, what was, what is, and whatever will be true comes from no other person, place, or thing. Uh, what, what was true in the past, what is true now, what will be true in the future, it, it doesn't come from anyone other than Jesus. There is no other person, place, or thing where you can go and find the source and origin of truth. You may find bits and pieces of truth in different things. The best lie is the one that's closest to the truth. But the origin and its completeness is only in Jesus. He says that's who he is. Thus says the Holy One, the True One. Not a Holy One and a True One, but the singular Holy One and True One. He says, the one who has the key of David. This is a little more obscure. If you don't know your Bible, it's, it's harder to figure out. But Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, it's a messianic promise where the key of the house of David was given to Eliakim, who then had access to all the wealth of the king. So what Jesus is saying is that he holds this key of David, and it is the key to all spiritual or eternal treasure. Uh, he said that he is the one who holds the key of the keys of death in Hades, and that had to do with the judgment of uh, those who reject him. This key of David, this is him saying that you and I in christ he 's saying, "I have eternal reward for you. I have spiritual blessing to you that you can 't get anywhere else. That's what he's he's telling them. And so what he's telling these people who are undergoing persecution, they're undergoing difficulty, is don't give in. He's the holy one. He's the true one. And stick with me. I have a reward for you that is greater than anything that this world has to offer. And then we see that he has the ultimate authority. He says, I know your works. I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, but you have kept my word and not denied my name. And he says, I know your works. That's, that's deeds, actions, or the undertaking of your life. It is the pattern of the course of your life. He says, I know it and I like it. I know the undertaking, of your life, I understand what you are pursuing. I understand where you're going, and and I and I like it. Does that sound good? Have God look at you and say, "I like where you're headed." Do you know how to get there? He says, "You have kept my word and not denied my name." This is what God says. Good job, to. He says these are good deeds. You have kept my word and not denied my name. In other words, uh, there's all these influences coming in on you to 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 go away from God's word. There's all these influences coming on you to uh, to maybe have uh, you know a little bit of truth but not all of the truth. A little bit of holiness but not all of God's holiness. You know, you just kind of play little bits and pieces, the salad bar of religion. You'll pick what you like and what you don't like and uh, you'll leave that out and so uh, you kind of go that direction. And he says I know your works, and they 're good you 've kept my word and not denied my name uh, denying jesus 's name one of the things that you 'll see people do is they'll they'll they 'll degrade who jesus is he 's either not fully God or he 's not fully man he either doesn't have deity and he couldn't save you or his Life wasn't actually joined to ours, and he doesn't understand us. But he's both. he's both fully God and fully man, this union. He joins us, and he deals with our sin once and for all. And that's the teaching of the apostles. The eyewitnesses, those who walked with Jesus, they, they saw his life, they watched his death, and they met him raised from the dead. They were commissioned by him. This is the apostolic teaching. He says, but you have little power, and so there's these limitations that have been placed on believers from those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, this phrase, synagogue of Satan, it's a specific reference to the time of uh, of this point in time to Jewish people who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and persecuted the church. He's saying that's the synagogue of Satan, people who are claiming to know God through Judaism but are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, um, and they're persecuting the church. This was a big thing in the first and second century. On a wider spectrum, this is religions that corrupt rather than keep the true apostolic and biblical truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. And you have to understand, all those things are important. This is who he is. He is God, joined to us in humanity, taken on flesh, died on a cross for the consequences of our sin, in our place, and for us as sinners, raised from the dead, proving that he is both God and man. He understands our struggles. He overcame our struggles. That's what he did. And right now what he's doing is he's using a group of people who are in him, who he brings out of the world and unites them to himself. We call them Christians, right? Little Christ is what the word means. People who are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And so right now what he's doing is through a group of people, a church that is faithful to him and his word and not denying his name, he's using them to spread the truth and the love of God throughout the world. Sometimes people respond to that truth in belief. Sometimes people reject it. That's between them and God. But he has us here to do that. And so any religious group that rejects a right and orthodox biblical understanding of Jesus and seeks to limit the voice of truth about Jesus, we could call that the synagogue of Satan today. It's probably bigger than the church, to tell you the truth. Any group that would leave orthodox, biblical understanding of Jesus and then limit the voice of truth about who Jesus is and what he's doing, that's false religion. He says that they claim to be Jews, but they are lying. That means they they tell lies, they cheat. Their, Their goal is to beguile, to trick you. With one hand, they'll say... This is the right way to have God, to be in relationship with God. And with the other hand, they know they're deceiving you. And this is a real thing. Uh, We talked about the graduates. I've I've seen many a student go through the youth group and sure looks like they're pursuing Jesus. Kind of has that appearance. I don't know what's going on in their private life. I'm not there. That's between them and God. But it sure looks like it. Then they reach an age of reason. They leave the house. They go away to school. They go away to college. They've reached an age of reason and they have freedom. They can choose for themselves for probably the first time in their life on on a broad level. And they get tricked. Because there's a little bit of truth in what you can learn in the world, but it's not all of the truth. And Jesus says in the parable of the soils that, uh, in Luke 8.13, he says, And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. They go out and they experience Freedom and they can choose for themselves. And the world is tricky. And the religion of man, even when they say they're irreligious, there's still religion of man going on. It's alluring. And it grabs people. And he's saying to the church in Philadelphia, you're not doing this. You're doing a really good job. Your soil is good. The word has taken root and you're keeping it. You're not denying Jesus' name. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, those who are deceiving and lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. There, There will come a time when Jesus returns and he judges Righteously, and those who are with him, those who are on his side, those like the church in Philadelphia, they'll actually be with him in glory. And and there's like a, the ideas here of a, of a judge or someone on their throne, and uh, the the church sits with the saints sit those those righteous with Christ. They sit on either side, and uh, he brings those who have rejected him before him, and they have to bow not just before Jesus but before the 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 elect, the saved. And he says, the knowledge that they come to in that moment is Jesus sure loves them. And I rejected him. And that word love, it means to cherish, to take pleasure in, to prove one's love for another. You have to get this, that when Jesus does this, he's, he's, showing, he's showing these people who have rejected him, look, this could have been yours. Uh, this, this, this love relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ, it could have been yours, but you've rejected and you persecuted my children. You, you beat up my children. You, you tried to tra- you lied to my children. And there's consequences for that. But this could have been yours. This love that's found only in Christ. For those of us who are with him, I think sometimes we, we look at that and you, you have to realize that you know these students that I've that I've dealt with, I, I cared about them deeply I still do. This may be one of your children. this may be a family member of yours look like the word took root. but then you see the course of the pattern of their adult life and it sure doesn't look like it. And we're not here to judge if they're saved or not, but you can judge a, a, a tree by its fruit and if there's no fruit, A person probably needs to hear the gospel a little bit. Probably need to see it in you. But he says, I'm going to come and they're going to bow down at our feet. And they're going to know that I've loved you. And then he says, why in verse 10? Because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And so Jesus promises those who belong to him that they will not experience his wrath. You've kept my command to endure, and so you're not going to experience this hour of testing. Uh, That hour of testing is a time or season of rebellion against God. And the point of this rebellion against God is people are saying, Are you good? Are you just? Are you loving? It's actually people testing God, and in the end, it's a test they wish they wouldn't have undergone. Because God is going to show himself to be just. He's going to show himself to be righteous. He's going to show himself to be holy. He's going to show himself to be loving. But those who are in Jesus, there's no condemnation. Those who are in Christ, the wrath of God has already been poured out on Christ, and so we won't experience God's wrath. Those verses in your handout in John and Romans and 1 Thessalonians, that's what those are telling us is that we have been wrath has been removed from us because it's been placed on Christ and we will never experience God's righteous hatred for sin because it was poured out on Jesus, not us. And so there's a great measure of thanks involved for that on our part. Then he says instead that we rewarded by him for their endurance and taking possession of him and his guarantees. Uh, They're not going to experience this hour of testing that's coming on the whole world. And then he uses that phrase for those who live on the earth. And that's an important phrase as we go through the book of Revelation. We're going to see it another 10 times. Um, And it's used throughout Revelation to describe unbelieving idolaters who suffer various forms of retributive tribulation. When we went through the book of Ezekiel, uh, God said on multiple occasions uh, that I'm going to recompense or I'm going to reward them for their deeds or they're going to have consequences for their deeds. But basically, the course of the pattern of your life, you're going to receive back from it, from God, the direction that you're going. And so if your pattern is away from God, it's rejecting his truth and it's fighting against him and harming others, uh, worshiping the creation over the creator and being unbelieving, that's a group of people who's going to suffer God's retributive tribulation. You're going to go through difficulty as a result of the pattern of your life. And he says that those who are in him will be saved from that. Now, there's different views on the end times or eschatology, and what we look at here uh, as we go through this. I, I believe that chapter four through uh, through 19, 18, is about a, a, a seven-year period that we is yet to come. There's different views on that. Um, and, and so some people view this as something that's ongoing throughout history. I think there's application that we can look at in our lives. But there's a great hour of testing that that will come when Jesus, uh, when Jesus raptures his church. And then the earth is going to go through seven years of tribulation. And at the end of that, Jesus comes back and binds uh, Satan and evil. And then uh, there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. And even during that time when people physically see Jesus rule from the throne, they'll reject him. Um, and at the end of that time, Satan and uh, evil is, is cast into the, uh, um, into the pit of fire once and for all and we get the new heavens and the new earth. And what this is saying is that those who are in Christ will not experience, the church will not experience that seven years of tribulation because there's no wrath for those who are in Christ. So he says, hold on to what you have. I'm coming soon. He says, see to it that no one takes your crown. And so this is the greater reward that we see from this passage. No one takes your crown. There's five crowns that are listed in the New Testament. Uh, The first one is the victor's crown. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, But what the victor's crown is, it's for those who say no to sin. And and everyone that's in Christ should do that. Uh, but, But not just no to sin, but we must learn also to say yes to a narrow view of doing what has eternal value. This crown is for those who seek not just what is good, but what is best. And so, you know, it's not say no to sin and sit on the couch. It's say no to sin and pursue righteousness. It's say no to sin and pursue God's things. It's It's not say no to sin and be disengaged from what's going on in the earth, but it's say no to sin and pursue what has eternal value. And then there's a crown of rejoicing. That's First Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a crown to, awarded to those who bring others to Christ. It's often called the soul winner's crown. Uh, this reward is given to those who reach out beyond themselves and lead others to Jesus and his kingdom. Um, this is one where people say, Well, if the Great Commission is for the church... You know, if Jesus wants us to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them uh, and, and baptizing them and letting them know that God is with them. And then, then we should probably do that. It's probably not something that we should take lightly. And so, there's a crown that's awarded to those who look at the Great Commission and they say, "This, this is real. I'm doing this." Crown of righteousness is in First Timothy chapter, or excuse me, Second Timothy chapter four. And what we see with this one is many Christians become so caught up in earthly activities that they forget that they're a citizen of heaven. Pretty easy to do in the political season, isn't it? And I'm not saying you shouldn't care about politics, but you need to remember where your primary residence is. And so this crown is not for believers who live for the things of this earth. It's for those who long for Jesus' return and the consummation of his kingdom. Um... I saw a quote recently, it said, uh, I, I long for Jesus's return because the, the, the more time I spend on earth, the more I can't wait for there not to be sin. It's, it hurts. Uh, my my great grandfather was a man, he lived to be 100 years old, and, uh, and uh, I don't know why I said he was a man, he wasn't like a, a dog or something, um, but he lived to be 100 years old, and uh, he said he wanted to live to see Jesus' return. He wanted to be here for the second coming. It got him to 100 years. Um, I'm pretty sure that granddad's wearing this crown. He just loved the idea, the truth of Jesus returning. There being justice everywhere. There being no more sin. Uh, the idea of of of... Each and every person looking out for the best of each other, never acting from selfish motivation because they were f- they had the fullness of Christ. That crown of righteousness. The crown of life is referenced in James chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. Um, this is for believers who maintain their love for Christ while triumphing over persecution, temptation, and even martyrdom. They will receive this crown. Um, many people will receive this crown because they gave their life for their faith in Jesus, but there will be others wearing this crown too. Um, any believer who has kept their faith when it is costly to do so, anyone who has suffered, endured, persevered, persevered or encouraged others, will receive this crown of life. I was, I was had a phone conversation, a Zoom conversation with a missionary friend who's doing work with the underground church in Afghanistan. Um, and the work that they're doing with uh, Afghan regi- refugees that have left Afghanistan, Christians that have left Afghanistan and gone up to Tajikistan. Um, and there's some 13,000 people in a refugee camp. And they're doing work feeding them and getting, making sure that the, the church continues to care for each other. They're, they're doing work making sure that the Christians that have stayed behind in Afghanistan have, have funds given to them so that they can continue this work of their, sharing their faith in a hostile environment. crown of life crown of glory is referenced in 1st Peter chapter 5 this crown is given to faithful leaders of God's people elders deacons teachers Sunday school leaders ministry leaders missionaries and so on the countless believers who carry out servant leadership as they give their life to the purpose of seeing God's people grow closer to Jesus and live more in line with his word uh, there's a there's a group of passionate people that they want to see God's word taught and they want to see Christians live like Christians he says that there's a crown of glory for this. And so you read this, and this is the greater reward. This is God looking at you and saying, this is what I have rewarded you for, as for your time in this realm, on this earth. Um, I don't know about you, but the idea of five crowns sounds pretty good. Um, you know, we're all five. Maybe I'm just too competitive. But I think the other thing to hear is that God has gifted you as an individual believer in specific ways. Some people he's gifted as teachers, and so they use their gift of teaching to build up the body of Christ, to see Christians live like Christians. Some people are just the most encouraging people you've ever met, and they, they use their time and their energy and their effort to lift people up and get them through difficult situations. And there's people that they're just so focused on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone who will listen. And so they're going to, they're gonna, any chance or opportunity they get, they're going to share the gospel of Jesus so that people can come into right relationship with him and these crowns are something that God is going to look at us and say you've kept my word you've not denied my name you've lived your life in a meaningful way well done and so he's encouraging this church in Philadelphia that has lost their place they have but little power within their city he's encouraging them to push on uh, I, he, I'm, I understand that there's a group of religious people who are trying to quiet your message about the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, but don't don't back down, keep going. Live for this greater reward. there's a, There's a one who is holy and one who is true and one who holds the key of David, the one who can give you eternal reward. Live for that. My, my son, uh, Solomon, and uh, one, of, one of his good friends, Balin they, they're both homeschooled. I'm not here to tell you homeschooling's better or something like that. It's exhausting. Um, but uh, they didn't have a graduation, and so we did a little graduation for him, party for them last night. And uh, Chris and I were sharing with our sons, you know, kind of like, live for this greater reward. Um, live for something that, that matters. And some of that is you have to realize that God has given you talents and gifts and abilities and you should use those. Like we told them, you're, you're not going to have a house and a car and if you want a boat, you're not going to get those things playing video games on my couch not going to happen. Like, do the hard work. Use your hands. Go after it. Don't back down. God's given you, um, uh, he's given you intelligence and he's given you gifts. He's given you abilities. Use them for his glory. And then wherever he takes you in your career, work for him. And and as you go into that career and you go into that workplace, do what you're doing for him. But realize you're not going to be successful in life by sitting around. You got to live for this greater reward. But all of those things will not fulfill you unless they're lived in line with God's word and empowered by his spirit. I don't care how many possessions you have or how much money you get or how nice your house is. It's not going to fulfill you unless you recognize these things as gifts of God to be stewarded to bless other people. Then they'll have meaning. Then they'll have purpose. Then there'll be a greater reward. And Jesus describes this greater reward a little more in verses 12 and 13. He says, The one who conquers I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So he describes this eternal reward. Jesus promises an eternal realm of reward centered on his goodness and glory. This new Jerusalem, this new city, this place without sin or death. If you've never read Revelation 21, do it. he says, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so pillars were a big deal in the ancient world. And in Philadelphia, they they would have been something that they would have recognized. There was a big earthquake in 17 AD. The city of Philadelphia fell to the ground. um, And these pillars, like you picture maybe the Parthenon or you picture uh, the library in Ephesus and those huge columns on the outside. Well, those columns were what held up things. Pillars were what held up things on the inside as well. And so Philadelphia, they went through this earthquake and they, and they saw their city fall apart. And so he's saying, I'm going to make you not just this pillar of stone that crumbles, but I have an eternal reward for you. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you'll never go out again. He says, I'm going to write uh, my name on him in the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. And he says, this is something that they would have done. Uh, we've actually archaeological evidence from these these old cities in, in the Greek world. One of the things that they would do is they'd erect these pillars, and then on the pillar, it would have the name of the city, and then it would have people that they were honoring, it would have their names on that pillar. So they'd be like, you know, Philadelphia, and, and here's a military person, or a, a civic leader, or a magistrate, or, you know, one of those types of things. They'd write their name on it to honor him. And so what he's saying Jesus is saying as, I'm going to honor you not with just some piece of stone but I'm going to make you the pillar. Uh, in Revelation chapter 21 when John sees the new Jerusalem in verse 22 of Revelation 21 he says I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He says I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God, and then he says, There is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And he's saying, I'm going to make you something that never crumbles or fades in Jesus. I'm going to honor you in that way. And so that's what it means to be made a pillar in the temple of God. It means to be not a temple about walls or monuments of stone or precious metal, it's about people. The temple of God is about people. It's a place where those who have overcome through the shed blood of the Lamb and His resurrection from the dead, they're honored. It's about people who, they're not deluded into viewing Jesus as anything less than the one true God joined with humanity to overcome sin and death that was due to us. This temple of God, this new city, it's about a steadfast family who are gripped by the grace of their Messiah. Their Savior, their Lord, and their God, Jesus. Do you understand that you, if you are in Christ, you are gripped by His grace? He holds you. You ever give somebody a hug and they don't hug back? It's kind of weird, right? They just sort of stand there limp. Hug back. He's you're you're gripped by him. Embrace him in return. This is the reward. That the God of eternity, he he looks at you and he loves you. He hugs you. He holds you. He grips you. And you get to hold back. And so it's this family who's gripped by God's grace. They, They cling to him. They fix their eyes on him. They remain in him. They abide in him. They seek to honor him. They love to praise him. They live to proclaim his gospel. They claim their new name in him. They know they belong to him. And they foster no desire to belong to another. You may feel the desire to belong to another than Jesus at times. Your flesh may pull you in that direction. You may even get tricked or beguiled for a little while into going the wrong direction. But as you grow in Christ, you learn to spot the places where you're fostering the wrong relationship. And when you spot it, you say, no, I'm going to weed that out. They embrace holiness, purity, and truth. They live in the boundless, immeasurable love of God. And see, God's grace, it doesn't flow just to them, but it flows through them to the world around them. See, these people, they recognize their reward is great because it's given by the one who holds the key of David. The one who opens and no one will close. The one who closes and no one opens. And so you walk away from this passage and and you ask yourself, is my life truly motivated by the reward of knowing Jesus and serving him? You look back at your week. Did 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 I live my life in my workplace and at home and in my hobbies? The things I do in my community, were they motivated by the reward of knowing and serving Jesus or were they fixed on something more temporal than that? How can you tell? If you were to plan out your week ahead of you and you say, well, on Monday I've got this and on Tuesday I've got this and on Wednesday I've got this and and there's things you have to do. Some of them, things you'd rather not do. But can you do those things motivated for a greater reward? You endure the hard stuff. Because you want to honor Jesus. Jesus. You, you look at your life and, and you, you practically organize your life around Jesus and his kingdom. You, you, you look at the way that God has gifted you. You look at the job that you have, the marriage that you have, the, the friendships that you have, the children that you have, the money that God has given you, the possessions that he's given you. And you say, I'm going to practically organize these things around uh, putting them into, stewarding them towards things that honor Jesus and grow his kingdom. And then you've got to ask yourself, why would I do that? Why would I organize my life in this way? And when I don't organize my life in this way, why do I choose that? Let me pray with you. Father, this morning we, we do pray that your spirit would inspect us. That, uh, that you would show us the places where we live for what is eternal and what, what lasts and the places where we live for just temporal stuff. I pray that, that this group of people here this morning and those watching online, that those who are in your son Jesus, that they would be known for those who have kept your word and not denied your name. Uh, they look to the, the scriptures and they say this is God's word Uh, They say this is how God has revealed himself to us and and this is how we can know what is right and true and holy and worth doing. They look at your gospel and they see it as the means of their salvation. They know that in your son Jesus' death on the cross that his body was broken for them and and in their place. That his blood was spilled for the remission of sins and that they are no longer condemned. That they will never experience wrath because you poured it out on your son Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for taking that for us. may we live our lives for the purpose of making your name known, not denying your name, but but specifically organizing our lives and the things that we have and the jobs that we work and uh, the hours that we spend, that we would organize those for your glory. And Spirit, I pray that you would show us that. And for those that are listening right now that don't know you, that they would hear what real Christianity is. We sinned. You created us in love, and we sinned against you. The foolish idea, like the Tower of Babel, is that we could build something that we could reach you with our own effort. But instead, God, what you have done is you've come to us. You've made covenant with us. You've made promises to us and you grab hold of us and you save us from our sin and so we thank you for coming to us. We thank you for saving us and and that's why we choose to organize our lives for you because you loved us. You gave yourself up for us. You saved us from the consequences of our sin. You are worthy of us choosing to pattern our lives in a way that honors you.